God shows us the dimensions of the altar. The altar is where you sacrifice to the Lord. It's very interesting in the Old Testament as we continue on. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembrick. I'm Janice. And the name of this program is Bible Discovery TV as we are still exploring Ezekiel 43 to 45. In five minutes, we'll talk about this and see where it's going chapter 43. Right now, Corey is here with Ryan. Corey? I'm going to be taking a look at a really interesting symbol used in the Jerusalem temple. Ryan? Well, yesterday we looked back to the very first high priest of Israel, a man named Aaron. And so today it's all about his sons, Nadab and Abihu, who unfortunately died prematurely. All right, very good. That That's fascinating. 25 minutes time, or 20 minutes time, that's coming up. 25 minutes. Janice, what are you doing? The Temple of the Living God is the title of my segment today. Okay, very good. Get your Bible out and let's open it up and listen to God and your Bible guide and let's learn what it says to us. Ezekiel 43. 13 through 23. These are the measurements of the altar in cubits. The cubit is one cubit and a handbreadth. The base one cubit high and one cubit wide, with a rim all around its edge of one span. This is the height of the altar. From the base on the ground to the lower ledge, two cubits. The width of the ledge, one cubit. From the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits. And the width of the ledge, one cubit. The altar hearth is four cubits high, with four horns extending upward from the hearth. The altar hearth is twelve cubits long, twelve wide, square at its four corners. The ledge 14 cubits long and 14 wide on its four sides with a rim of half a cubit around it. Its base, one cubit all around, and its steps face toward the east. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, These are the ordinances for the altar on the day when it is made, for sacrificing burnt offerings on it, and for sprinkling blood on it. You shall give a young bull for a sin offering to the priests, the Levites, who are the seed of Zadok, who approach me to minister to me, says the Lord God. You shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar, on the four corners of the ledge, and on the rim around it. Thus you shall cleanse it, and make atonement for it. Then you shall also take the bull of the sin offering and burn it in the appointed place of the temple outside the sanctuary. On the second day, you shall offer a kid of the goats without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar as they cleansed it with the bull. When you have finished cleansing it, you shall offer a young bull without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 13 through 23. Ezekiel 43, Ezekiel 44, 
Ezekiel 45. That's what we teach today as we go through the Bible. It is very, very exciting. You know, there are reasons why life is found in the blood. Bible readers can understand why the Hebrews were not permitted to eat any animal sacrifices with any of its blood remaining in it. God reiterates some of these procedures in Ezekiel chapter 43. As he speaks to Ezekiel about cleansing or consecrating, setting apart the altar and the way the sacrifices were to be handled. Now, the altar is the key place where sacrifices were made and helps us to see and learn the cost of sin, S-I-N. It's not old school, it's real. There is no way that we as humans can offer or do anything to erase our rebellion and our sin against God. No way. Now, there is something that we can give. We can give our life as a living sacrifice. That is, we can give all to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain for our sins, who sacrificed his life for us by paying the cost of sin once and for all. Once and for all. That's it. And as we continue to think that through and begin to understand it, we need to pay attention because God is doing amazing things right now. And in this time, when this program goes to air and it's on, and it's on the internet and it's on air, let me tell you something, God is doing amazing work. Take your Bible guide. If you don't have one, why not? You can write or call or go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com, click on it. And when it takes you to the page donation, thank you so much for your donations. It'll take you then to a page where you can download it exactly like it's printed, but take your Bible guide. But the most important book of all is this. It is a word of God. And let me tell you something. This word is absolutely stunning. I don't worship the word. I worship God, but this is his word to us. Now, in the 41st chapter, we talk about the dimension of the sanctuary and the dimensions and the, the design of the temple area. 42, we talk about the chambers of the priests. We're talking about measuring all of this. Ezekiel is the temple of the Lord's dwelling place in 43. And the dimensions of the altar and the consecrating of the altar, the setting apart, which we're going to talk about today. And of course, 44 gets even into more if we talk about more of that. Cleansing of the altar. How do you do that? Well, that's something interesting. And Father, today, it's interesting because it involves our life. How do we come to you? Father, how do we, so many people try to make themselves right to come to you, but they can't. We have to come to you as we are, just as we are, as the song says. Help us, Lord, to come to you just as we are. And clean us up and make us right, Lord, because we're a mess. And the nations of the world see that. They see it in themselves. And so, Lord, we need you today. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, as we focus on this, chapter 43, verse 13, here is what the Bible says. It says, these are the measurements of the altar in cubits. The cubit is one cubit and a handbreadth. Now the base of one cubit high and one cubit wide with a rim all around its edge of one span, this is the height of the altar. From the base 
on the ground to the lower ledge, two cubits. The width of the ledge, one cubit. From the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits. And the width of the ledge, one cubit. Now the altar hearth is four cubits high with four horns extending upward from the hearth. And the altar hearth is 12 cubits long, 12 cubits wide, square at its four corners. The ledge, 14 cubits long and 14 cubits wide, on its four sides with a rim of half a cubit around it. Its base, one cubit all around, and its steps face towards the east. Now that's fascinating. God shows us that the dimensions of the altar and giving to God is a real part of seeking him. Let me tell you something. Giving is a key part of worship to God. God loves a cheerful giver because that's part of worship. We give our tithe and we give our offerings, whatever God tells us. And that's really important. You know, I, I see it as like, a, a, you know, it's just more important than any payments I have because that's what we start with. And so then we have what's left over. And some people say, what are you talking about, Rod? Well, actually, only I read in one survey, only 4% of churchgoers bother to give anything. 4%. Giving is an act of worship to God. Very, you couldn't go in the temple without giving. So I'm just saying, think about that. And Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 18. And he said to me, son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar on the day when it is made. For sacrificing burnt offerings on it and for the sprinkling blood on it, you shall give a young bull for a sin offering to the priest and the Levites who are of the seed of Zadok, who approach me to minister to me, says the Lord God. You shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar, on the four corners of the ledge, and on the rim around it. Thus you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. Make, make it so that God can accept it. And the altar of God is to be cleansed and washed from sin, S-I-N. We should keep ourselves washed in the word of God and prayer daily. Beloved, you should read the word of God and you should pray on a regular basis. I'm telling you right now, this is what we'll do. We'll help you do it right here. So we need to do that. And, and we try to do that every day. Very important. But let's go on because this is really interesting. Verses 21 to 23. Then you shall also take the bull of the sin offering and burn it in the appointed place of the temple outside the sanctuary. On the second day, you shall offer a kid of goats without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar as they cleansed it with the bull. Cleanse the altar? Absolutely. Verse 23, when you have finished cleansing it, you shall offer a young bull without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. Oh my goodness, this is fascinating. God tells Ezekiel that cleansing the altar is the first place we begin with God. Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross so that we could come to him. Is your altar cleansed? You know what your altar is today? It's your life. It's your life. We live in the New Testament times. And these times, 
the same principles, but they're different in terms of speculate, in terms of how they look. And we speculate, but we say, this is our life. Lord, we give you our life. Give Jesus Christ your life today, beloved. This is very important. Start living for him. Start doing the things he would call us to do and has called us to do. Don't live for yourself, but live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Very, very important. Hi, Rod Hember here. We go through the Bible every year from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Now you can join us and watch at the time you like by searching Bible Discovery TV on the Roku box or on Amazon Fire TV. Anytime you want to watch us, we're there. Get a hold of it. Watch us anytime you want to. As we continue on with our study of the Bible, we find ourselves in Ezekiel 43 through 45. And starting in chapter 40, the prophet began to give us a glimpse of God's future kingdom on this earth, which includes a new city, a new temple, priests, and most importantly, Jesus Christ, our new high priest and the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who will rule and reign there forever. Now, as I mentioned on yesterday's program, because Ezekiel's looking forward, I thought it would be good to look back to where it all started. And yesterday we profiled God's very first high priest, Aaron. So today I want to talk about his two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu. Now they were priests of God, but unfortunately it didn't turn out well for them because they committed a fatal offense against God by offering what the Bible calls profane fire. But what exactly does it mean to offer profane fire? What was it exactly that got them killed? These are the questions we're going to try and answer today. Leviticus chapter 10 records the tragic death of Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, who each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. While there is no question in this passage regarding the cause of death, questions do arise regarding the exact cause for death. Actually, there were multiple infractions committed against the Lord here. First of all, as the Jamieson Fawcett Brown commentary points out, this incense service never was Nadab and Abihu's duty to begin with. This was a responsibility given first to Moses and then to the newly appointed high priest Aaron. Nevertheless, they entered in unauthorized and proceeded to offer up a fire which is described in Hebrew as profane, strange, different, or foreign. Nadab and Abihu apparently used coals of fire that were not taken from the brazen altar, as had been clearly prescribed by God earlier. This strange fire violated God's word and would have set a disastrous precedent. This act also most likely involved the entering into or trying to enter the most holy place. Because the prohibition of strong drink comes right after the deaths of Nadab and Abihu, many believe that these men were under the influence. Whatever the case, the sin of Nadab and Abihu consisted not only of their venturing in unauthorized to perform the incense service, which was the highest and most solemn of the priestly offices, and not only in their engaging together in a work which was the duty only of one, but in their presuming to intrude into the Holy of Holies, to which access was denied to all but the high priest alone. In this respect, they offered strange fire before the Lord. 
They were guilty of a presumptuous and unwarranted intrusion into a sacred office which did not belong to them. For the offering up of impure fire, the all-consuming and holy fire from the most holy place, went out from the Lord and devoured them, though it appears that neither their bodies nor robes were consumed. God is a holy God and will never allow his holiness to be violated, not even by members of the high priest's family. So this is a really scary incident, which is really similar to what happened with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. And in that New Testament passage, this husband and wife had sold a piece of their property in order to give the money to the church. But the problem was that they deceptively held back part of the money for themselves. And for that, God killed them on the spot, just as he did with Nadab and Abihu. And it's important that we understand the real sin here. It wasn't that Ananias and Sapphira held back some of the money since the money already belonged to them, but that they lied about it. And in both instances, God cannot and should not be blamed for what followed. The truth is that God always gives us ample information about his expectations of us. Nadab and Abihu, as well as Ananias and Sapphira, were well informed. Also keep in mind that most sin is done deliberately, not out of ignorance. Nadab and Abihu and Ananias and Sapphira did what they wanted, not what God commanded. So let's not make the same mistake that they did. And remember, those who teach and minister must be held to a higher standard because the power of their influence is great. I think that's important. And remember that Ananias and Sapphira were in the New Testament hmm. after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and Nadab and Abihu were in the Old Testament, but the, the result is the same. Absolutely. Yeah. And the Holy Spirit, you know, Peter said the Holy Spirit is the one who took your life. And so... Mm -hmm. We don't give the Holy Spirit that kind of uh, understanding in our mind, and we really should. Yeah, very, very for sure. Corey? All right. Well, today, because Ezekiel is taking a look at this new restored temple, I thought it would be cool to go into some ancient imagery that was a part of the original temple and even a part of the original tent tabernacle of Moses as well. We're going to be taking a look at the pomegranate, and we're going to discover that not only was it an important symbol in the Bible, but also in the surrounding cultures of the day. So comparing and contrasting those is also really interesting. Take a look. In the ancient Near East, the pomegranate was a widely accepted symbol of fertility. This was due to the many seeds contained in each fruit. The pomegranate's potential for reproducing seems nearly unlimited, so standing as a symbol for fruitful potential, productivity, and abundance was quite appropriate. Its red, blood-like color may have also been a consideration, as blood is vital to life. In the Bible, the pomegranate was used as a clear symbol of abundance, potential abundance, and blessing. It appears in the list of fruits given to the Israelites to demonstrate the promised land's abundance. And the Hebrew word for pomegranate, Ramon, is incorporated into the names of some sites mentioned in the Bible, including Gath Ramon, meaning pomegranate wine press, and Hadad Ramon, which may have been a place of spiritual apostasy in the plain of Megiddo. The pomegranate was also used in Israel's religious life. The garment of the high priest had both a functional and decorative hem that included gold bells to announce his presence in the temple, intermingled with blue, purple, and red yarn pomegranates. The bells had a functional purpose, while the pomegranates must have had a decorative and symbolic purpose, perhaps representing the many blessings of God that came with worshiping him as he had prescribed. 
Later in Israel's history, the Temple of Solomon also incorporated pomegranate imagery, this time as a decorative element of the building itself. Many bronze pomegranates are said to have decorated the capitals, or tops, of the two entryway pillars into the temple. The pomegranate as a decorative and symbolic element is well known from the archaeology of the Near East. A variety of pomegranate-shaped objects have been found in cultic or religious contexts. Items like pomegranate-shaped vessels or pots, pomegranates from the center of bowls, pomegranates from votive offering rings, and small pomegranates that were meant to hang off various vessels. With the recent discovery of a clay-hanging pomegranate from the Israelite religious site of Shiloh, there is now archaeological evidence that the pomegranate was an important symbol in the Philistine, Canaanite, and early Israelite religions. It seems that pomegranates may also have been associated with women in ancient pop culture. This can be seen in the Bible by the use of pomegranates in Song of Songs. The pomegranate's association with abundance, fertility, and therefore beauty is used by the author to describe the beauty and attractiveness of the female character. This association with femininity is also seen in the historical record and has led some scholars to interpret ivory and bone sticks topped with small pomegranates as women's pins for clothing, coal sticks, which are ancient makeup applicators, and spindles involved in clothing production. There we go. There is so much to be learned and gleaned from taking a look at some of the ancient symbolism that we have still preserved for us in the scripture. There's so much that could be said about pomegranates and recent finds and so many good things coming up. Yeah, it's really, <laughs> it really is interesting. Archaeology in this aspect is, uh, is really something else. Mm -hmm. What they continue to find is really something. Very good. We'll look forward to that. Janice? Don't you love, Rod, that as we are reading through the Old Testament and when you have read through the Bible more than once, when you begin to start making those connections, and as you're reading, so many of the scriptures remind you and help you to understand what Jesus Christ has done for us. And, and it makes the Old Testament so much more meaningful when you see the things that are foreshadowed within the scriptures. And today, as I was looking at Ezekiel chapter 43, and it's talking about the temple, the Lord's dwelling place, and he's giving dimensions of the altar here. He's talking about consecrating the altar or setting it apart, making it holy. And as I was thinking about that, I thought of what Jesus' sacrifice and death on the cross, that work that he accomplished on the cross for us to be reconciled to God through him is just so amazing. And when we have that available in our lives, how it just changes everything, we become not a temple structure as a building. The temple is no longer a building, but the temple is each one of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's Holy Spirit literally dwells within us. 
Paul reminded the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 6, and I would challenge you to go ahead and read it. There's a section called Be Holy, and it's from verse 11 all the way down to 18. I'm going to read from verse 16, um, partway down 16. Paul says, For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And this is what we are offered, Rod, through Jesus Christ, whom God sent his only son on the earth to become that sacrifice for us, He was killed. He gave his life willingly on the cross. And through his shed blood, we get redemption. We get atonement. He gave himself on that altar once and for all. And I find it interesting here at the end of Ezekiel, it's going through this process of the consecrating of the altar the cleansing of the altar. And it says in verse 25, Every day for seven days you shall prepare a goat for a sin offering. They shall also prepare a young bull and a ram from the flock, both without blemish. Seven days they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it and so consecrate it. And isn't it amazing that these things are not requirements anymore because of what Jesus Christ did for us. But listen to this. When these days are over, it shall be on the eighth day. And thereafter that the priests shall offer your burnt offerings and your peace offerings on the altar, and I will accept you, says the Lord God. Even in those times, God made a way for men's restitution, but there was so much work involved in it. And yet, with Jesus Christ and the work that he accomplished for us once and for all is still available to each and every one of us with a personal decision on whether we follow and we believe who Jesus Christ says he is or not. And it is a personal decision. So I would challenge you today, if you haven't made that decision, pray about it, think on it, because you will be held accountable one way or the other. And you pray simply by closing your eyes to lock everybody else out, not to interrupt you. And you say, Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross and you rose again. That's all you have to pray. God will come in. Again, I come to you and I ask the question, are you living the way God desires you to? I mean, you you know from his word and you know from the Bible and prayer that it teaches us to live a certain way, but most people are living for themselves. Well, let's pray together and let's ask the Holy Spirit to begin to change our mind and change our thinking. Father, I pray today that you would change the way we think that people who call themselves Christians would begin to truly live for you give their lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.